the uh, climate change agenda is a major industrial revolution that we will have to undergo. And uh, so the, even that knowledge from these early days helps me a lot in keeping the optimism because it's only through innovation that we are able to put into the market that we are going to make it. Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stevens, a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. Today, we're very fortunate to have with us Joss Delbecke, who is currently professor at the European University Institute in Florence, Italy, and at the KU Levin in Belgium. He's probably best known for his long service at the European Commission including as Director General of the Commission's DG Climate Action from its creation in 2010 until 2018. Even before that, he was very heavily involved in the development and implementation of the EU emissions trading system, and for several years was the European Commission's Chief Negotiator at the UNFCCC Conference of the Parties. Welcome, Joss. A pleasure to be here. So I'm very interested to hear your assessment of many facets of climate change policy, ranging from the performance of the European Union Emissions Trading uh, System, or EUETS for short, to the nature and pace of the ongoing uh, discussions uh, in the international realm with the Paris Agreement. But before we get into that, um, I'd like to go back to uh, how you came to be where you are. So I want to start pretty early there. Um, where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in uh, Belgium, in Flanders, and then I uh, made it to the University in Leuven, in which I was picked up by a professor who convinced me to make a PhD. And so uh, things from then on were rolling quite fast. After my PhD, I had a few... Uh, uh, very, very interesting months at the IMF in uh, Washington. And then I had to make a decision either to stay there or to come back to Europe. And I went back to Europe um, because the European Commission at that time was headed by Jacques Delors, mm -hmm. uh, who was a stronghold, you know, in European politics. And, uh, and uh, I got signals that they wanted to develop the new environmental dimension of the Treaty of Rome because the original Treaty of Rome was about coal and steel, but not particularly about environment and certainly not about climate. And so I took on that challenge, and so things developed in the European Commission. Now, one thing you said really struck me. You said that uh, your professor at the University of Louvain convinced you yeah. to study economics, to pursue it. Um, how did he convince you? Well, he convinced me to make a PhD. You know, So uh, I was studying economics, and, and a PhD uh, journey certainly at that time was a multi-annual experience. Today it's much more structured. Uh, it's a program that you have to follow and a thesis to be made, but at that time the old regime, so to speak, was the major uh, piece of uh, work that you had to deliver. Uh, but he was a fascinating professor in economic history, and he specialized himself on innovation theory, which is, of course, uh, something that is very relevant for what we are going through today. The uh, climate change agenda is a major industrial revolution that we will have to undergo. And uh, so the, even that knowledge from these early days helps me a lot in keeping the optimism because it's only through innovation 
that we are able to put into the market that we are going to make it. So it's interesting that uh, you explain that background because we share something. So when I was doing my PhD in economics at Harvard, there was a requirement at the time to study t- two classes in economic history, and which was an absolute requirement, something I didn't want to do. I loved the two courses, wound up writing a paper later published on essentially economic history of technology innovation. So in addition to everything else we share, in terms of policy instruments and climate change, there's that as well now. That's very fascinating to know that. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. So let's turn then to your work at the European Commission and and more broadly in the European Union. I believe that at an early stage that there were considerations being given both to the possibility of a carbon tax and to what eventually became, of course, the cap-and-trade system. Can you tell us about what were the factors, what were the discussions, debates like? Well, we uh, were looking very carefully at the data because I was one of the few economists at the department at the time uh, looking into environmental issues. And of course, economists looked at the costs and at the technologies. And so looking at low-cost solutions uh, was a kind of fresh element that I could bring on the table. And I was asked to make that operational. And in making that operational, you go to the modeling and you go to making simulations. And I had good friends at the university and several universities. And so we originally were building the team around which a well-informed policy move could be done based on economic and econometric modeling, which allowed us to reply to lots of questions that the politicians are normally asking. If we have a tax of A, what would you expect in 10 years or 20 years the reduction of emissions going to be? And uh, that's normally always a difficult question to ask, but with our econometric analysis, we could uh, give a quite reasonable range. And so people like that. So the modeling, together with the search for low-cost solutions, uh, made it as uh, an important contribution to what uh, was being done at the time. And as a young official, uh, I got many chances to, to develop this further. We started with air quality. And then we moved on to climate change. Uh, The IPCC reports, 1992, the uh, World Summit in Rio de Janeiro uh, was really bringing the issue on the table. And I was asked to be part of the team to roll it out. And then how did it take place between the choice, if if it was decided to do carbon pricing, or at least to consider it seriously, the choice between a carbon tax on the one hand and a, a cap and trade or an emissions trading system on the other? Well, we got convinced that carbon pricing was important. That was the first step. And in the second step, in particular, according to European traditions at the time, it was spontaneous to go for taxation. So, um, in fact, the emissions trading was an alien idea at that time. Um, But as an economist, I followed very much how the United States were developing the sulfur experiment. And um, that was very new. And uh, I had to teach my colleagues that you had an approach of taxation, but you could also go through cap and trade. Uh, But that was um, not well understood. And so the spontaneous thing was to go for a tax. Now, we learned that the hard way, a tax is always difficult because people do not like taxes. And so in a democracy to explain why you have to go for a tax that is going to make your way of living a little bit more expensive, 
was a journey that was very difficult to explain to the people. And they said, well, there may be other ways to protect the environment. Uh, but as an economist, I always kept the truth about carbon pricing in the back of my mind that you could have other technical regulations, uh, but they may be much more expensive and much more difficult to follow up on. And so we started with the tax and we were delivering the proof that it was in a democracy not possible to go with the required consensus at the time. Uh, consensus is required for tax matters in the Treaty of Rome. So we, we, ought to, we ought to emphasize that point. Not all our listeners will be aware of that. So within the European Council, uh, within the Council of Nations, one country, one vote, unanimity is required if it's a fiscal measure, a tax. Yeah. Whereas for other policies, what's the vote required? Exactly. And the uh, unanimity requirement, that is a traditional chapter of the Treaty of Rome, is very explicit. But we just developed in the Maastricht Treaty of 1986, the Environment Chapter. And the Environment Chapter brought forward the possibility of voting with qualified majority. And uh, when we discovered that getting through with a tax uh, was very difficult, I brought forward, um, you know, why not for going for a cap and trade? And hi, guys, look, the sulfur trading system worked in the United States. Mm -hmm. And that coincided with the Kyoto Protocol of 1997, mm -hmm. where the American delegation was very active to bring the carbon pricing and the cap and trade on the table. Uh, at that time, I had not yet convinced my colleagues that a cap and trade could make sense and uh, because they were strongly believing in the tax. And uh, in Kyoto itself, they, I was not present. They were fighting against that idea of the cap and trade that the United States was bringing on the table. Yeah, the European Union was opposed to that. Point. They were very much opposed to that, and the whole uh, lineup was being against it. Now, in the end, the Article 12... Uh, uh, 6, 12, and uh, I think 17 or 18, 17, yeah, is, um, has made it to the Kyoto Protocol. And when the team uh, returned from uh, Kyoto, uh, it was with a sense of defeat that they had to accept this kind of cap and trade. And I said, but I told you, it's not as bad as you believe it is. And so my uh, boss at the time, the director general, called me and he said, well, what do you really mean it when you say it was not that bad. And I said, of course, you know, that is my notes and look at this and look at that. And he said, well, then I will ask you to make it happen. Uh -huh. So please, can you do it? I move you to another post, uh, which was then the climate change unit mm -hmm. that was created for me to make that happen, to, uh, to rescue the failed story about the carbon and energy tax and to move it further towards an emissions trading scheme. So it, it's a uh, delicious irony that uh, in Kyoto, the United States was leading the charge among the so-called umbrella group of countries, you'll recall, for including emissions trading or something like it actually in the Kyoto Protocol. The European Union was opposed. It winds up going in. Then the United States doesn't ratify the Kyoto Protocol, and the European Union becomes the first point in the world where there's a significant cap-and-trade system on CO2. Absolutely. It's the irony of history, uh, because one of the first trips I undertook after being nominated in that new post was to go to the United States. And I went to the White House, and I met several people with whom I'm still uh, meeting occasionally because I have the best memories of uh, them telling 
yeah, me, uh, what the operational plans were, what the plan was for the United States. But then the, the big disappointment came when uh, George Bush uh, uh, Sr. decided to uh, uh, withdraw. But so. but remember Bill Clinton himself, Clinton, who had been president when Kyoto was negotiated, never submitted the Kyoto Protocol to the Senate for ratification because he knew he couldn't get it. Get it. We learned that all en cours de route, as we say. Yes. Uh, but uh, the, the brutal reality was that you know the United States was dropping out of the Kyoto Protocol, which was a major uh, a major thing to happen because the whole Kyoto Protocol targets were designed in a way that the United States would be part of that international carbon market. And then the United States dropping out created an enormous disequilibrium in, in the system that we had to overcome. And that led us to uh, make a designer of the EU ETS. That is not a design between countries. It is not countries trading with one another, but it is companies trading with one another. So I think that's fundamentally important because countries are not cost minimizers. They don't have the information, even if they were, in order to minimize costs. They don't know the abatement costs, but it's firms that can. And that's the way the European Union has designed it is exactly the right way. Okay, well, it's good to hear that. And also, uh, I was aware of that, but we had a, nevertheless a problem. That is that uh, the EU is several member states. Yes, And the course. member states were at the negotiation table in Kyoto. And they said, hang on, uh, are you then saying that this EU ETS will be for companies all over Europe? And I had to explain, of course, that's the definition itself. And uh, thanks God we did that, because now we have a European regulation where distortions of competition cannot uh, happen between companies inside the European Union, which, once you go for higher targets, would have created quite a, a bit of trouble on the point where we are today, mm-hmm. uh, where we have to make our targets stricter. And um, we have now a European system where distortions of competition between European companies are absolutely impossible. It's the same rules of the game wherever you are located with your installation in the north or the south of Europe or the east or the west. You know, it's exactly the same uh, game. And that led to a tremendous cost minimization. Mm-hmm. I think the low-hanging fruit uh, was reaped. In fact, the latest statistics show that between 2005, when we started, and today, 2018, the emission reduction is 29%. And that is for the, all the installations in Europe, all big installations in the energy and the manufacturing industry. So 29% down in less than 15 years, I think, is, is quite remarkable uh, when we compare it to emissions from transport that are roughly 20% up. Right, which are not covered by the EU ETS. And they are not covered by the EU ETS, and that is handed over, that's delegated to the member states to do that, and we are not going as fast as we should. So let let me ask you, since you mentioned that, I guess it's about 50% of the emissions of Europe are covered by the EU ETS, because it's essentially, it's a downstream system uh, on CO2 emissions. Um, Another possibility in theory, as you well know, is an upstream system, which is regulating the carbon content of the three fossil fuels at the point at which they enter the economy. You made a decision not to go with that approach, but to go with the downstream approach covering half of the economy. Can you Tell us what the thought process was there. Well, uh, we were 
not uh, jumping to transport because in Europe we have energy taxation at the pump. So the excise duty system, as it is officially called, is already creating quite high energy taxes at the pump. And we would have pleaded for an additional tax. I see. And uh, so transport was dealt with already uh, through the normal you know, procedures, while for the other installations, um, it was brand new. There was nothing related to taxation or nothing related to uh, environmental regulations re- related to greenhouse gases in particular. So it was a field that was not covered. And so it was somewhat easier to come with a fresh new idea of a establishing a carbon market uh, because otherwise you were always falling into the trap in this member state that exists already in another right. member state something right. else is, is existing and then you had to carve out all kind of exceptions which would have made the system much less pure compared to what it is today. And with relatively high petrol taxes in Europe this would have been a real challenge to add an additional Absolutely and that is exactly the same question we are facing up today because the European Commission is looking into extending the carbon market, the ETS, into other sectors, in particular uh, transport. Uh, but that is exactly the same thing. Right. You know, then uh, we saw the experience of the Gilets Jaunes in, uh, in Paris, where a jump uh, of the uh, petrol prices created quite a bit of unrest. And so uh, that's a big lesson, that when taxation levels are already high, that people are very sensitive to increasing that even further. Now, something else that I heard, it may, it may have been from you, but maybe not, so I won't put words into your mouth, was that another reason for the decision not to go for the upstream economy-wide uh, carbon content of fossil fuels cap-and-trade system is that that would look like a tax downstream, which is true, it would, it would affect relative prices, and that therefore you would back in the situation there would be claims that, wait, this is implicitly a tax, it ought to be, it needs unanimity in the council. Exactly, and uh, that's why uh, we were very keen to define the cap and not go into the pricing arrangements. Okay. Because, uh, and that is also one of the questions that comes back today on the table. Should we not regulate a minimum price or a price color? And I have always been advocated against doing that mm-hmm. because you run into a situation where one or the other member state may say, hang on, this looks like a tax, so it must be a tax, so you go for unanimity. And so, uh, so far, we created an instrument, the Market Stability Reserve, that is a cap-based instrument uh, to absorb the surplus that was in the market, and we avoid it in making a price color for exactly for that reason. Same thing again, yes. So um, what's going to happen uh, if Brexit takes place? What, what does that mean in terms of the EU ETS? We took all provisions um, that uh, Brexit would leave the system untouched, uh, but of course the UK would leave. And that is a reality we had to bring in. In the Brexit agreement, uh, that is all well spelled out. So it's important that we have a Brexit agreement, that the UK is leaving the EU with an agreement. If the UK leaves without an agreement, um, we had to make a kind of fix to make sure that they could not drown the system because the allowances that are circulating in the UK would all of a sudden have no legal value. So they may just the day before Brexit dump them all at uh, very low prices on the European market. 
And so we were obliging the UK authorities to label the allowances of the UK as UK allowances. Mm -hmm. Normally, there is only one allowance, an EU allowance, but for the very uh, special circumstances uh, that we had under the uh, Brexit debate, uh, that was the fix we were going through. Now, having had many discussions with our British friends, I think that the reality may well be the following for the coming years, that is that the UK, hopefully orderly, will leave the EU and then may reconnect again into the market uh, with an independent UK ETS, very much like we are doing with Norway or like we are doing with Switzerland. Switzerland, Switzerland, as of the 1st of January of 2020, will be operationally part of the system and uh, will handle EU allowances. Mm -hmm. So I want to turn um, to the truly international dimension. Uh, under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. So you were very involved or certainly knowledgeable about uh, Kyoto and engaged back then. Uh, You were the head of the European Commission delegation to the UNFCCC uh, negotiations that led to the Paris Agreement. The Kyoto Protocol and the Paris Agreement are very different animals. Um, And I think it's, it's not unfair to say that the reason why the Paris Agreement has such broad scope of participation, something like 98% of world emissions with associated countries, compared to the Kyoto Protocol's 14% in the second commitment period, is because of the structure of the Paris Agreement, this bottom-up, nationally determined contributions. Everyone says that. But it's for that same reason, I think it's fair to say, for that same reason that the individual ambition of countries, because it's a global commons problem, free rider issues, you as an economist think about that a lot, um, the ambitions is not what one would hope. And therefore, some people are critical of the Paris Agreement. They say we, we should have done the Kyoto approach you know, like Kyoto on steroids would have been better. What's your thinking of the comparison between the Paris approach and the Kyoto approach? You are absolutely right, and I agree with those uh, people uh, raising the criticism that the uh, bottom-up nature of the Paris Agreement makes it much more difficult to have ambition in that uh, Paris Agreement, and that is what we live through today. Uh, there is no mechanism that leads to higher ambition. It's rather the other way around. And we also have uh, very different degrees of implementation of the plans, the NDCs that were submitted. And that is why I welcome very much that the the COPs uh, have lately been shifted more to implementation issues rather than negotiation issues of Mm -hmm. new targets, because you first have to deliver and do your homework before you can enter into the, the next round of discussions. But it's certainly more complicated. When it comes to carbon markets, for that reason, we established a kind of uh, concertation between all those who have been implementing carbon markets or are in the process of doing that. We do that in Florence, and we call that the Florence process. Uh, We have participation from California, from Canada, from New Zealand, uh, from China, uh, from Korea, and others are knocking on our door uh, to join because we see that carbon markets are being discussed also in other parts of the world, like in uh, South Africa or in Chile or, mm-hmm. or in Mexico. So uh, we are fairly open. But what pays off is that those people can, behind closed doors, exchange the real practical difficulties they are facing when the legislation needs to be prepared 
and negotiated uh, for uh, the, uh, the the cap in uh, that that is reining their systems. Uh, but that has been a very fruitful set of discussions. Now, nevertheless, the nations I'm mentioning are only a very small subset right. of the uh, of of the world, uh, and and that is bothering me uh, in in any case. Uh, so we hope that. Uh, the United States as a state is going to uh, join the process again uh, sooner rather than later, but, you know, it will be in the hands of the United States. But I do think that when the Chinese get their EU, uh, their ETS um, uh, up and running nationwide for the power sector, uh, they have a plan to expand that to eight sectors, mm -hmm. manufacturing sectors. Uh, it will take some time, as it took also some time for the European system to have up and running. But once the Chinese have their act together, I think that may uh, serve as a source of inspiration for a lot of other nations, mm -hmm. emerging economies. And in Florence, as part of the Florence process, we are now uh, developing a project together with the CPLC from the World Bank um, with G20 countries on carbon pricing. Um, there is a lot of uh, uh, infrastructure that is already being built through the PMR and other things, but now the decisions have to be prepared. The real cutoffs, how to define a cap, uh, how to design the infrastructure that you need for a cap and trade uh, mechanism uh, to function. Now, going into that other gear is something uh, that I'm paying a lot of attention to those days. And uh, I hope that uh, the Chinese are going to make it. I, I, in fact, I'm confident the speed and the thorough nature of their preparations yeah. lately is just impressive. And uh, we should bear in the back of our mind as well that China is a continent. It's not just a country. It's a continent that uh, is composed of many provinces, like the member states of the EU. Mm -hmm. And so in that uh, federal nature, a lot of questions came from the Chinese our way. How do you deal with a member state that is more or less industrialized, has, is more or less relying on coal-fired power generation and things like that? So we had very mature uh, discussions with them, and I really do hope and uh, that they are going to succeed. You know, it's it's quite remarkable the size, everything with China because of the size of the country, the size of the economy, um, is always striking. But if, if China represents about a something like thirty percent of global emissions. If eventually the uh, the new uh, emissions trading system, which actually is a tradable performance standard, as you know, not a cap and trade system per se, if that covers about half of the economy, when it's both power sector and these other industrial sectors, then that's 15 uh, uh, percent of global emissions, which is exactly the amount that's currently covered by all uh, carbon pricing systems, carbon tax and cap and trade combined worldwide. Yep. So it would double the magnitude. It's really quite striking. The last thing I want to ask you is, is uh, quite apart from what we've been talking about, because we've been talking about policy, technical nature of many policy developments, which is very, very important. But there's something else that's happened in the past year, and that seems quite new. And that is the degree of the youth movements of climate activism. And that's happening both in Europe and in the United States. Could you just say briefly, what's your reaction to that? 
I think that movement has been very useful to uh, bring the attention for uh, climate change by the political decision makers, uh, to make that attention clearer and more pressing. And I think that helped a lot in putting the real perspective clear. That is that over time we all have to go down to climate neutral economies. That is the long-term perspective. That's mm -hmm. the Paris Agreement. And uh, that change in perspective from the short term to the long term has been indirectly brought forward by these young people because they say it's about our future. It's not about your future. It's about our future. And 30, 50, 80, 100 years from now, how is the world going to look like? And this long-term perspective brought the carbon neutrality mm -hmm. to life. And that provokes quite... A, new set of problems um, and the new set of problems that we, I see in Europe coming forward is give us an idea about the amount of investments that are necessary in which technologies so as to bring forward that long-term mm -hmm. objective and once you have settled that out then the question comes back what is going to be the incentive for those investments and those right. innovations and then you come back to the carbon pricing there is a raging debate in Europe about uh, tightening up our cap. Mm -hmm. um, tightening up our cap will lead to higher carbon prices. Uh, we know price ranges have been given, Stern Stiglitz and others, right. um, but I think that Europe is moving uh, forward into those price levels, not overnight, because sudden developments do more harm than they do good. So a gradual mm -hmm. development is, uh, is useful. And that is what we have to tell to our young people. Uh, they were putting in, uh, with more insistence, the long-term future. But we have to tell them as well, you have to give us a bit of time, not to sit on our hands, but a bit of time right. to move the economy that is in the end a tanker in, this, in the right direction. And I think that carbon pricing is an absolutely essential element into that. That's a perfect place to end. Joss, thank you very much for joining us today. Our guest today has been Joss Delbecke. He is professor at the European University Institute in Florence and at KU Leuven in Belgium. And of course, he served at the European Commission as Director General of the Commission's DG Climate Action from 2010 to 2018. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.hks.harvard.edu.